Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. So this morning, we have Elevate and EGC. So kids, you are dismissed. Uh, Elevate's first and second grade, EGC's third, third through fifth grade. So if you don't know me, my name is Joel Waymack. I'm one of the elders or pastors here. And um, I, got, I got the high sign last night from the coach at about 8 p.m. that I was going to be preaching this morning. So I am not your first string quarterback. I'm not your second string quarterback. I'm actually your third string quarterback. <laughs> so Trey actually uh, tested positive for COVID uh, at the end of this week. Uh, Darden did not pe- test positive, but he's not feeling well this morning. So uh, like I said, I'm your QB, third string. There you go. <laughs> so uh, I, I say all that. Please be in prayer for both of them. Uh, that they will recover quickly, uh, but also uh, listen with grace this morning because this is an impromptu sermon, pretty much. So we will be continuing on in our sermon series this morning. So we've been, we're walking through 1 John. If you remember, all the way back at the end of last year, we, were, we started going through 1 John, and we took a pause for um, Advent and Christmas. We also continued that pause as we talked about the personal disciplines at the beginning of this year. And now last week, Trey, we dove back into 1 John. So this morning we're going to be back in 1 John. And if you remember, all the way back when we started the sermon series, we said three things about, about, uh, about John's gospel, or sorry, John's letter. First, he's all about Jesus. He wrote this letter because he wanted people to know who is this Jesus that he has encountered. And not just who is this Jesus, but second, he wants us to understand that Jesus is both light and life for us, for his people. And lastly, John wants his people, wants us, God's people, to know about Jesus' immense love for us and what that calls us to. So those are the kind of the three, three points that John continues to talk about throughout his, his letter. And so this morning, like I said, we're going to jump in. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4 this morning, continuing on. So let me pray for us again, and then we'll jump in. Father God, I thank you that you are good and gracious. I pray that as we open up your word, as we look at your truth, as we look at what John is trying to say, that you will work in our hearts and our minds. That spirit, you will illumine our minds to understand who you are, understand what Jesus has done, understand how that impacts every aspect of our lives. But I also pray that spirit, you draw our affections to you, that we will see the great love of Christ for us, and that we will respond in love in the same way. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord and our King. Amen. Okay, so to try and set the stage for this, um, I'm going to say a line from a song, and I want to see if you guys can finish it. So, and you can say this out loud, it's okay. So, here we go. Can you feel the 
Okay, there we go, there we go. How about this? Dun, dun. All you need is... Oh. <laughs> there we go, there we go, I like it, I like it. <laughs> How about this one? And I will always... <laughs> there we go, there we go. <laughs> Good job, sorry, you had to listen to me sing for a little bit. So if you think about it, if you think about these songs and a lot of popular songs in our culture, it seems like we're obsessed with love. I mean, even tomorrow, tomorrow's Valentine's Day, we're obsessed with love. I mean, tomorrow we're buying lots of chocolates, confessing undying love to one another. You know, we talk about love as a society a lot. But what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> no, sorry. Or maybe more importantly, we should ask the question, when we describe God as loving, what are we trying to say about God? What do we mean? Is it this kind of fickle infatuation that we see in some high school romances? Uh, is it just this anything goes affirmation? And we, when we as Christians are called to love, you know, when we're called to love God and love one another, what does that look like? So that's really what John's talking about this morning as we're jumping into this passage. And so just like, just like all of the top artists today that are talking about love, John loves to circle through love in his letter, and it kind of hits its pinnacle, its peak, in the passage that we're reading this morning. In this passage, John is going to give us kind of the fullest description that he has of what love looks like. And so... Let's dive in, and let's take a look, and let's read this passage. So like I said, this is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. So it says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has, has made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the, for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment 
we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Did you hear John talk about love at all? Like I said, John has two primary themes that run throughout, throughout this letter. The first one is that Jesus is both light and eternal life. And the second one is that Jesus is the ultimate picture of love. And here in this passage, he uses the term love 27 times. 29 times if you count both the beloveds. That's a lot, a lot, a lot of love. Clearly, John is trying to say there's something important about love that's going on here. To understand this a little bit better, I think we kind of need to remember the context in which John is writing. So if you remember back to the very beginning when we started this series, we were talking about who John was and kind of at what point in his life we're at. So if you remember, John at this point in his life is probably in his 80s. He's very, very old in terms of, of this time period. People didn't generally live into their 80s. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to write and record a letter to send on to the next generation of believers. He wants to pass on what he's experienced, what he's seen, what he's heard, this Jesus that he walked with. Listen to this. This comes from uh, the very beginning of this letter. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, heard Jesus, which we have seen with our eyes, Jesus healing, doing miracles, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, Jesus' pierced hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Then he goes on to talk about the goal of his writing. Why is he writing this letter that which we have heard and seen, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So over and over again, John is going to talk about love because he sees this as key and essential to understanding this Jesus whom he walked with, whom he spoke with, who he listened to, who he touched who he saw miracles performed, who he saw raised from the dead. John is wanting us and his original audience to know this is who Jesus is. This is the Jesus that I know. This is the Jesus that I love and that I trust. And he wants us to know this Jesus because he wants us to have fellowship with God as well. So John's focus in talking about love is to bring us or bolster us in our fellowship with God and with one another. That's his goal. And so when we're looking at this passage where he's talking over and over again about love and various facets of love, this is his goal. He wants us to know God through Jesus, who is the ultimate expression of love. So in this passage, John talks about two aspects of love. The love of God and then our loving response to God. And John keeps pressing it home over and over and over again. The love of God is the root of our fellowship with him. That's the, the first and the key point that John keeps pressing on. 
This love of God, this love that he has shown for us is the root of our fellowship with him and it's the root for our love for one another. But what is this love of God? So John's talking. He's using this word love a lot. I don't know about you, but as I read this passage, I find it very confusing because he just kind of keeps circling around and throwing in seemingly random ideas. It's kind of his writing style. It's okay. Maybe it's just he's an old man. He's kind of gets lost a little bit. I don't know. Maybe. But he's trying to continue to point us to what is this love of God? What is going on here? So if you think back to the songs that we, we, we talked through at the very beginning, is the love of God like those, like those songs say? I would say that most of those songs talk about the love of God being the, closer to kind of this blank check to be yourself. Do whatever makes you happy. Like, let's be, let's be happy together, but don't, don't, don't judge me. Like, just take me as I am and love me as I am. I would say that's not what John says God's love looks like here. When we look at the love of God, God doesn't condone living any way I want, acting any way I want, believing anything I want. That's not love from God's perspective. Our society would say, would maybe flip the phrase that we see in verse 8. So verse 8 says, God is love. I would say that our society would actually flip that phrase and say that love is God. The highest ultimate good is to not is to not judge anyone, care about their status, care about what they're doing in their lives, but simply love them for who they are. But once again, that's not what we see John saying about the love of God. Instead, we see John talking about God's love put on display. It's not an anything-goes attitude, not laissez-faire at all. Instead, he declares that there's a specific way that God has called us to live, to act, and to believe, and that you and I have actually failed to live up to that standard. And in verse, verses 9 and 10, he actually points to what is this love of God that we see coming into the world. And this is what he says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, shown among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is made manifest. It's put on display for us and in this world through Jesus, through what Jesus has done. It's not simply Jesus' good teaching. It's not simply healing the sick, the blind, the lame during his ministry. John doesn't point to those things, actually. It's not his care of the marginalized or the outcast that truly displays the love of God. Instead, in verses 9 and 10, we see something very specific that John hones in on as the ultimate display of God's love. It's God's willingness to send his son to be the propitiation for our sins. <laughs> propitiation. Weird word. I don't know about you, I don't use that word in everyday language, like, hey, did you propitiate any gods today? That's crazy. 
The term propitiation is definitely a religious word. And in our, in our society, and our climate, we, w we don't use that word. In this day and age, it would have been much more common for people to have talked about propitiating gods. That word actually means to appease the wrath. That's what it means, to appease wrath. So when, when we read about Jesus bring, being the propitiation for our sins, what we're reading is that God has appeased his own wrath by taking our sins upon himself. To understand that word more, I think it's actually helpful to jump back to the Old Testament. So if you remember the story of the Old Testament, kind of in large strokes, um, we have the Exodus where Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, and they encamp at Mount Sinai, and there God declares a new covenant uh, with his people to say, this is how you are, you are supposed to live. And along with those covenants comes a series of uh, very important religious holidays. And arguably the most important of those holidays is one called Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. It's where the high priest, the, the one who is supposed to be leading all the other priests in sacrifices to God, goes, sacrifices an animal. All the people have been waiting in an expectant longing, fasting for this day to arrive. And the high priest takes the blood of the offering and goes into the Holy of Holies and sprinkles the blood of this sacrifice onto the Ark of the Covenant to cover the sins of the people. But it's more than that. If you understand the Ark of the Covenant as described in the Old Testament, there's multiple pieces to it. And the very top piece of the Ark of the Covenant is actually something called the mercy seat. Or that's how we translate it in English. And the mercy seat is this big, thick slab of gold that has two cherubim, two angels, outstretched over the top of it. And the view is that this ark is God's, where God resides, and it's actually the mercy seat in which God's glory comes forth. So God is seated at the mercy seat. And so when the high priest comes in once a year to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice, God is looking down from his throne to the law, which is inside of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Tablets of Stone, and instead of judging the people based off of what is written in the law, he judges the people through the lens of a sacrifice of the blood that's been splattered and sees the law and declares the people not guilty before him. When we read the word propitiation, that's exactly what we're reading. We're seeing God looking down from above through the lens of a sacrifice of blood to his law and declaring his people not guilty. So when we read what John is saying here, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, it's God looking down from on high to the sacrifice of Jesus' blood and saying, we are not guilty. That's a completely different type of love than what our, what our society would say. It's a love that says there is a way that you are to live and you have failed to live that way, but instead, I am stepping in, sacrificing myself for you. And the beautiful thing is, 
when we understand this concept of propitiation, when we understand what Jesus has done, the love that has been shown toward us in Christ, we see that we, are, we can approach God in confidence, not in fear. That's actually what John talks about later on. So in verses 17 and 18, he says this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We know that we are no longer under judgment, but instead we can approach God without fear because our punishment has already been taken in Christ. This is what John is trying to tell us about love that the love of God is a self-sacrificing love in which he will stop at nothing to make us right before him. A wayward people who don't even follow up, who don't live up to his code, to his law. So that's the picture of love that John paints when we think about the love of God. But John's discussion of love obviously doesn't just stop at the love of God. He also speaks about what our love should look like in response. And this is an important order for us to understand. John is talking about Jesus' love for us, his self-sacrificial love for us, being the cornerstone or the bedrock for our response in love to God. And this is actually the bulk of what this passage focuses on. He's talking about what does this response of love look like? Not just in response to God, so loving God back, but also a love that is pervasive in our own lives that goes out and loves other people well. So John is concerned with what this responsive love looks like in our own lives. You and I love God and each other in response to God's love. Just to drive home that point to make sure that we don't get the ordering wrong, Let's look at what he says in verse 19, because I think he says it very clearly. We love because he first loved us. We love God because God first loved us. We love others because God first loved us. Our love is always a responsive love to the act of God. And this is beautiful because... I often think about this like, man, I just need to, I need to love God more. I need to love my, my wife more. I need to love my kids more. I need to love my neighbors better. I need to love my coworkers more. Um, we can subtly get into this kind of rhythm where we think, I just need to, I need to love more, as opposed to seeing it as a responsive act to what God has done in our own lives. But it also goes further. John actually points to something supernatural that goes on as we experience this love of God. Instead, instead of it just being us like saying, I mm, need to love God more in response, we actually see a transformation occurring in this passage. So look at verse 7. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then in verse 13, he kind of expands on this point. He says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 
We have been born of God. The Holy Spirit resides in us. There's a fundamental change that's going on in us who are in Christ. It enables us to respond to God's love well by loving him and loving others because the Spirit is transforming us. We're being born again into new people, new creatures. So that gives me confidence. I don't know about you. It makes me, gives me assurance that God's at work doing something in me, producing new love, new affection because of what he has done, not because of what I am doing. There's also an aspect, Paul, I mean, John is obviously writing this because he wants us to, to live according to God's, to God's word, according to his ways. And so what's going on here is John is also saying, okay, now let's think about this. Let's, let's discuss this. Let's pursue this. So there is an active component here. And so we should naturally ask, okay, what does this love look like? What's this active component here? Is it like those descriptions of love songs where love seems so finicky, based on the moment or emotional? Or does the love that John is talking about here that we should be showing to one another have a deeper aspect to it? The Greek word that's being used throughout this passage, so all 27 times or 29 times, has its base in the Greek word for love called agape. This, is, this may not seem significant to you. Um, in English, we use the word love to cover a whole range of meanings. I can love my wife. I can love bacon. I can love my kids. I can love watching Star Wars. We use the term love in lots of different situations. But in Greek, there's actually four different words for love. And here, the word agape that is being used as the base word for all these references is a self-giving, sacrificial love. Once again, it's the same type of sacrificial, self-giving love that we've seen shown in Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. This is the same type of love that we are called to have toward God and toward one another, a deep, abiding, self-sacrificing, self-giving love toward one another. Now, there are many ways in which we can see this type of love playing out in, in circumstances. For instance, maybe there is a single parent that you interact with a lot, and they just need a break from just like watching their kids day in, day out. And so maybe it's just the simple act of saying, okay, I'm gonna invite, invite the kids over, watch them for a few hours so the parent can have a break. Or maybe you know of a depressed or lonely college student or coworker that doesn't have a whole lot of friends or places or outlets, and so you invite them over for dinner on a regular basis to love and care, to invite them into your home and into your family, to show them love and belonging. Or maybe it's an elderly neighbor who's having a hard time keeping up with their yard work, and you just simply start mowing their lawn. These are all ways, important and good ways, in which we see love playing out. And I think these are proper ways in which we see the love of God playing out in our lives toward other people. But I think John's point here is not on these type of activities, 
but on something that's actually deeper residing within us. So one of the biggest issues in the church during John's time here, in John's day, was a stark division over ethnicity. Are Jewish Christians real Christians? Are Gentile Christians real Christians? Which of these two are the real Christ followers? Can't be both, definitely not. For reference, read all the book of Romans. Clearly there is hate and anger and division and strife within the church because of these very differing beliefs and sets of practices. I think John, in writing here about the issues of love, is talking about much deeper issues in our own lives and our own hearts than actions we can take to show love. So please hear me. Sometimes when we say sacrificial, self-giving love within church settings, we kind of sit back, we sit cozy in our chairs, because we've heard these phrases before, and they don't shock us. But let me tell you, verses 20 and 21 that John says here should shock us, should shock every one of us. He says this, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, who, this is the commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We can't love God and hate our brother. We are liars if we do this. Here we see the rubber meeting the road in what John is trying to communicate about what the love of God looks like in our own lives. And this wars against how you and I hold our views on a multitude of issues. Let me ask you, do you love or hate people who hold differing views on vaccination status? Public, private, homeschooling? Raising or lowering taxes, masking or non-masking, racial issues. I could go through a litany of issues in our day that are polarizing, that cause us to see and feel hate toward our brothers and sisters. And so when we look at what John is communicating here, he's saying, yes, there are important things within the church, but your treatment of brothers and sisters who hold differing views than you demonstrates whether you are truly saying, I love God, or whether you are lying to yourself. Even beyond issues, this view of love goes deep into our lives. I don't know about you, but I have both family and close friends who have hurt or wounded me. And when I harbor anger or resentment or revenge based off of past wrongs, I cannot say, I love God, because I'm found to be a liar. And this is hard. This doesn't mean that this changes overnight. Working, working through wounds is difficult and messy. But this is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. We were, who were alienated and hostile in mind toward him doing evil deeds, 
He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God has shown this type of sacrificial, self-giving love to us who opposed him on all the issues and have wounded him deeply in relationship. The words that John delivers here for us are stark, and we have to wrestle with them. We can't just pass them over. This is what God has done for us in Christ. So this is my encouragement to you. Throughout this week, take some time. Consider how God has displayed his sacrificial, self-giving love to you. Consider the love that Christ has had for you in being a wayward, rebellious sinner. And consider, what does it look like for me to show that exact same love to other people? And also take heart, because you will fail. You will fail in living up to that expectation of of love that is set forth here, because we are still sinners wrestling with sinful thoughts and motivations. But that's exactly, once again, why Jesus died and rose again on our behalf because we are not perfect, and he is still our propitiation for our sins, even in the midst of being his people. And so, as you consider and contemplate these things, as you fail and look back to Jesus, I encourage you, love responsively, because God has loved us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are loving and kind toward us, a wayward and rebellious people. I thank you for John's words that continue to convict, to press in, to show us what love looks like. And I pray that, Spirit, as you continue to work in us this week, as you continue to bring us face to face with our own sin, our anger, our hate, our resentment, that you will point us back to Christ, who is the ultimate picture of love, the ultimate picture of sacrifice. And I pray that you build within us a love in response. I pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.